0: Verses 1 to 12, Matthew chapter 5, it's on page 937 in the Pew Bible. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Heavenly God, we ask that as we turn to your word that you would help us, help us uh, to hear Help us to know, help us to understand, bring to us the things you wish to us to really stand out this morning. Please help us to be corrected, to encouraged, to be strengthened, to be helped, and we pray all these things, and I ask that, Lord, you would keep me from error. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Well, here it is, Uh, one of the most famous things you can point to in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. It is famous, and it's the first of five long speeches in Matthew's Gospel. They call them discourses, apparently, when you've been to university and know what that sort of word means. It means a long speech. And this is the first of five in Matthew's Gospel. They are important for his the way he's put together what he wants you to know about Jesus. The truths here are very well known in our circles and undeniably applicable to us all. There is much here to apply to us, but... In this series, I'm just going to look at how they fit in to Matthew's gospel and hear how they are addressed to the original audience and what that means for first century Israel before we get to what that means for us. It does have implications for us now, but I suppose I'm coming from the place that says we won't quite get the full impact unless we seek to understand what they meant, what Jesus meant in its original setting. When speeches are recorded, they have a very interesting way of interacting with us. It's as if we get the feeling we are hearing the words for ourselves. So no doubt, as you read it, you think Jesus is speaking to you it adds to the realness of what has been going on in the narrative of the gospel. It's good to keep in mind that the speech is actually not directed to us. It's actually directed to the people who are hearing it. This is a historical narrative, and narratives are not only about us, I don't know about you, but I love to hear everything about me. i got a feeling that's all of us, this isn't actually about us, but it does tell us about Jesus and what he did for us. There's a saying I liked, everything Jesus did, he did for us. And a speech also has another way of actually stopping the action and pausing and concentrating on what it says. It allows us to hear Jesus speak for himself. One of the things we've noticed as we've read along in Matthew's Gospel, he actually hasn't spoken much. Now we get the chance to stop and we really get quite a lot of him coming to us. It's a speech addressed to the original hearers, <clears throat> but it's also a speech, as I said, we hear. We can ask, the, ask these different questions. How does this speech affect the hearers? the people who are in the audience, does it affect his disciples? And there are several characters involved. If you read, there's Jesus, obviously, as the speaker. There's the disciples who are particularly at the beginning right here are the audience. These are the ones he's speaking to, the people he's just called to be fishers of people, of men in chapter 4, verse 18 to 22. If you look at the at chapter 5, verse 1, there are also crowds around. But if you look at the end of this speech, which I'm dragging you right to the end, chapter 7, verse 28, now there are astonished crowds. So the crowd is mixed, probably of Jew and Gentile, and this speech is part of the light That has been turned on, as we've just been seeing. The crowd are the people who live in in close proximity to Gentiles who, remember, what are Gentiles? They are people who are living in the shadow of darkness, the shadow of death. And these people are close to those people. Jesus' light has dawned on this and in this darkness and this speech is that light. The speech is the Messiah speaking to Israelites, preparing them for the time of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, what we would call the last days. Now I know as soon as I say the last days, you think down there somewhere coming toward it or maybe you think you're already in it. Matthew thinks that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is saying the last days are here. In this sermon, Jesus is calling his hearers to build their lives on his words. Firstly, the Beatitudes. They're called the Beatitudes because of that word that uh, Nina highlighted. What was that word you highlighted? Blessed or blessed, depending on how you say it. Uh, they pick up generally uh, all these things, pick up on the expectations of the old testament the what prophets and all the scriptures that they had. Remember they don 't have a new testament matthew's gospel doesn 't exist for a start. none of the gospels none of the New Testament documents exist when he 's talking about it he 's talking about the Old Testament, so when you see things like the poor those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are ways to describe the ideal Israelite, the ideal Old Testament believer, the ones who recognise, as we've seen, that they are actually still in exile, that though they returned out of exile, they haven't actually returned spiritually to their God. And remember that Matthew is saying the Messiah has come to bring in that new beginning, that new kingdom of heaven, the return from exile. The ones who hunger and are still under the judgment of exile, you might like to think of Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry to drag you out of Matthew. But you might remember Luke chapter 2. Think of Simeon. Think of Anna. They were those who longed for the time when God would fulfill the words of the prophets. Jesus here has come to fulfill that. And in this speech, in this sermon, he transforms what it means to be a true Israelite. I want you to, did you notice in verse 11 and 12? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What did I notice? I noticed this, all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account because of me. Jesus is aligning what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven, what it means to be a true Israelite. He's realigning them to be with him and to him. They're not to be Israelites politically or culturally. Instead, the Israelite is someone who exists in a relationship to the Messiah, Jesus himself because he has brought the kingdom of God near. The first and last Beatitudes contain the greatest gift, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 and verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12. uh, uh, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. All the other Beatitudes are part of that kingdom. And just like the Old Testament, they don't describe how to get into God's kingdom. Rather, they are the things that characterize the person who lives under God's blessing. They live in a ways that express the covenant mercy and love which has been poured out upon them. If you look at the beatitudes, you often think this is how I get into the kingdom of heaven. No, no, no. This is the people who this is what they are like in the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, they are happy in the kingdom. They are blessed is the translation we've been reading. Blessed is the word that we've been brought attention to. And this group exists as they experience the joy of that kingdom faith. The poor in spirit are destined for a blessing. For the Lord has poured this experience of the kingdom on them and in them. They live in that blessing from God. I think as we read it, it's likely to be the, the disciples who he's just called, he's speaking to, the disciples sitting in front of him. They've responded to this new kingdom come in the person of Jesus. Uh, years ago when the Good News Translation came out, do you remember the Good News? Is anyone old enough to remember the Good News Translation? Maybe you're not old enough, I don't know, is we all look pretty young, really. Um, remember how you, I remember it came out and he went to this famous sermon here, right here. I went here and it said, what did it say? Happy. Happy, you know, happy. Use the word happy instead of blessed. And I remember thinking, I hate this. Isn't this just typical? Watering down the power of the text. So I thought, wow, this is really characteristic of the good news translation. What a lot of rubbish. I was wrong, I was wrong, I was caught up in my own prejudice, I was young and uh, stupid and arrogant. Would you believe that this is actually a good translation here? The Hebrew equivalent to the word blessed is often thought to be happy, why? Because this is all about the believers. The happy is used as a descriptive word from Hebrew of the believer. And the Hebrew equivalent of blessed is given to God. So you might know blessed be the Lord God Almighty. See, he's blessed. But the believer is happy. Turns out to be not a bad translation. You might prefer Overjoyed, fulfilled, content. Those words might be, but that's what he's saying. The person who exists in the kingdom has been blessed by the Blessed One, and we live in joyful reception of that blessing. Thirdly, they are righteous Israel. The first four Beatitudes are drawn from Isaiah chapter 61. And Isaiah chapter 61 is about the work of the servant and it's about him reinstituting the covenant. The covenant is broken, it needs to be redone and the, Isaiah speaks about how the servant will come and make that new covenant that they might be a people. It's about the new world order that this introduces. And it's brought about by the servant figure, which is Jesus. It's a message to a righteous Israel because they will be made righteous. Not because of what they've done, but because what God has done for them in the person of this servant saviour. The Beatitudes then indicate that in this happening, the kingdom of heaven has come. I don't know about you, but you often think, I'm waiting for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel wants you to know you are in it now. If you believe and trust and have the Lord as your saviour, you don't wait for the kingdom of heaven to come. The kingdom of heaven has already come in the person of his of the savior who has poured his spirit into you to make you citizens of that kingdom he is doing a work in you and making you like the people on the page that you just read the beatitudes then are divided into two groups of 4 verses 3 to 6 7 to 10 would you believe that in each section there are thirty six words. That's not by accident. Matthew has carefully composed to make sure you get it. Jesus may very well have carefully composed those words exactly this way. Verse 30, verses three to six both conclude sorry, conclude with a thirst for righteousness. And they concern the inner attitudes of the believer. for it talks about them being poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. All that they've become as people of the kingdom. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Remember again, Simeon, Anna waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They're waiting for God's covenant promises, the promises in the Old Testament to be fulfilled. And the last four Beatitudes from verses 7 to 10 are bound to the first four in that they end with a demand for righteousness. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3. Blessed are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is bestowed on the righteous. The righteous are the ones who have received Jesus, the Messiah, the God who is rich in mercy. Looking at the other Beatitudes, verse 7. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful are the ones who are bathed in God's mercy. They overflow in mercy. This is beyond what they need to do, beyond the strict commandment obedience, for they ooze mercy. They ooze mercy because of the mercy they have received. Verse 8, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure here means something like integrity. An integrity that is pure and evident and on display. It's why 1 Peter 2 can say, See that good, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's this integrity. It is who you are. God is doing his work in you to make you more like Jesus. And so there's, a, there's also a concern for how you look and how you conduct yourself, verses 7 to 10. <clears throat> Happy are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's also a great movement back and forwards between the present tense and the future tense in verses 4 to 9. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The same thing happens in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, 8, 9. Future and the present tense together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are, fourthly, people who receive God's mercy. In wisdom literature, it works slightly different. What do I mean wisdom literature? Proverbs, Psalms... Things like that Ecclesiastes blah blah blah, it goes like this: If you act this way, this will be given to you. If you do this, then this will happen. That's how wisdom literature seems to speak. You can check it out for yourself another time. here it's slightly different. It's the apocalyptic way, the way that talks about how God's inbreaking of God's mercy and sovereignty sovereignty has come into our lives because the Lord is taking the initiative. It's not about how we act so this will happen. It's actually how God has acted and done that. How God has acted and how we are. God is bringing comfort to the lowly, to the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They are righteous because of the righteousness of God here. It's a term that is loved and it flows from the relationship that comes through being in relationship to the God, the God who promised in the Old Testament to be your God and you will be my people. They are poor and here the Greek has some idea like a beggar. They're completely reliant on someone else to provide for them. In the Old Testament, it became used of people who needed God's special help. Poor is known as the meek, the humiliated, and the oppressed. The poor in spirit, which is an add-on by Matthew, in spirit. If you look in Luke, it says, the poor... So for some reason we've got in spirit. It means that they have quietly accepted the earthly condition of suffering that they're in. They are patiently waiting for God's intervention to right the wrongs that have occurred, the wrongs they've endured, and they're confidently waiting for God's certain righteous outcome. In the future, they are the peacemakers of verse 9, the ones who wait for God to bring that peace. They seek shalom, peace, covenant wholeness poured out on them by their Lord. And fifthly, they realign themselves to Jesus. These declarations, as they come to the hearers, are quite challenging. Challenging Israel to realign their national hopes in their personal lives, realigning them to the incoming kingdom of God that Jesus brings. The inbreaking kingdom of Messiah has come, and Jesus authentically teaches them and gives them teaching, which the crowds in chapter 7, verse 28, go, We are astonished at this teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority. Matthew is saying the one who knows exactly what the law is about, what God has said, and what God is bringing has come in the person of the Saviour Jesus. And this proclamation of the kingdom of God is seeking the renewal of Israel and all the world. And so that is why they are poor in spirit. They want to see God to act on his promises. They mourn the lack of God's rule. They want to see God's kingdom dawn, so they hunger and thirst. They long for the fulfillment of the hopes of the Old Testament, and those hopes are being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Then they are proclaiming a national return to their God. Then Jesus is proclaiming they will reshape their lives to be as God wanted them to be, to reshape their lives in harmony With the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that is dawning and is going to be worldwide. So, for us, have you realigned yourself to this coming kingdom that is Jesus? Have you, are you poor in spirit that we need your everything we need comes from God's? own hands do you hunger and thirst for righteousness that the God of righteousness has come in Jesus and you want him are you longing to be with him and to have him do you have that integrity that purity in heart where Christ's spirit has come into you and changed your life Are you prepared to stand and be his and to realign yourselves to be a follower of this Saviour? For the kingdom of heaven has broken in. The kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Christ. Are you happy? Are you overjoyed in the giving of the blessed one for us? In all things. Christ has poured out his love upon us that we might be his people. Christ our Saviour,
0: the Lord our God, come to him today.